0: So we need to break the ice. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. What do I mean?
1: Overcome initial social awkwardness. So let's have a conversation.
0: I did something unexpected today. Do you know a girl with long red hair? She's not ringing any bells. She doesn't live here, or. No.
1: Madeline is not ready to be buried yet.
0: She's upstairs, resting peacefully. Oh, Oh, if she's not dead, you tell her to come down here. You tell her to come down here, walk right up to me, and kiss me on the... Kiss you on the what?
1: I've spent too much time in this body! I'm fucking trapped
0: in here! few basic questions before the operating system is initiated. This will help create an OS to best fit your needs. back hey Sarah hey Mary it's been such a long time I know nice to be back
1: yeah I haven't recorded with you in ages it seems
0: no I know I wasn't even I couldn't even remember what time we usually record like (laughs) I was I was just I don't know I forgot that I needed synopses I just did them in the last half hour I couldn't remember how to connect where my microphone was just somewhere in my room so it's (laughs) it's really nice to be back I'm really excited about this series
1: me too welcome back to projections podcast everyone welcome to series seven the
0: topic that you guys chose in the poll the uncanny oh yeah the poll okay so i i'm really glad that we got this subject because it's really cool what do you Mm. guys have against tech like i remember (laughs) like it I mean, it's gonna be so interesting, guys. There's so much stuff to do. And yeah, and you hated it. And last time you loved it. And I don't understand what's going on. So I'm just I just want to say a word in defense of tech for the next poll. Okay, I'm disappointed in you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's gonna be my um, preferred item too, guys, just so you know, I want to influence your vote in the next poll. (laughs) Please vote for tech. And short of that, you know, erotic cinema is good too. Um, Yeah, we're we're happy
0: with erotic cinema. That would be lovely as well.
1: Yeah, we're all, you know, we're Scorpios over here. So we're perfectly Mm. at home talking about uh, horny subjects. (laughs) Um, So um, what have you been up to since we last recorded?
0: Oh my God, what have I been up to? When did we last record? Before summer? Oh, crazy. Well, I mean, I what have I been up to <laughs> so like have I got anything done in the time that we haven't been recording I've just been kind of um well I gave I quit my kind of long-term job recently yeah. so I'm like working as a freelancer next week as you know I'm going to Paris for a oh job Oh god, amazing I'm going to be working at Paris photo um uh, an amazing exhibition that is showing unseen Deborah Turberville images wow. um so it's going to be amazing so that's exciting um and yesterday I was at, I was actually selling my books on a, at a in a jumble sale my zodiac books wow um, and actually I have a shout out um a girl came along and she bought the best book which was the making of June like a illustrated book about David Lynch's June oh wow. um it was really nice I was a very good find and then uh, after she paid she was just like and I love your podcast <laughs> and I, and then just kind of ran away and I was like oh my god thank you like it was such a nice thing to have so I think she said that her name is Lucy I hope okay. I get that right but yes just, thank you that was lovely to meet you and very nice nice little kind of uh compliment you threw at me before before uh. you went away <laughs> <laughs> so sweet, um and what about you? You've been super busy. I've seen like all your work <laughs> and you've been doing courses, you've been like you've been doing really great guest spots on podcasts and and yeah. we saw each other briefly at the film festival, which was nice,
1: yeah, as always, I completely randomly bump into you, which yeah. I love mm-hmm. at the film festival. It's always such a nice surprise to see you. um yeah, I've been super busy doing my patreon um that's been really kind of keeping me pretty, uh, organized. Actually, I like having something every week that I have to commit to something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it helps me organize my time. It really appeals to my inner Virgo of like <laughs> sort of structuring things around uh, this one deadline I have every week, you know? And uh, yeah, I been. it's been really nice. I've had a bunch of, uh, good guests on there, um, which I still have to book you to come on. I mean, I I know yes, I, I released I, I released that episode the the kind of um I think we recorded it like six months ago, that um Proust questionnaire. I released it just a few days ago. But that's a pre-recorded thing. I want to get you like alive in the flesh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in the disembodied voice, actually. <laughs> how we, we
1: that's how we record.
0: Yeah. Um and also,
1: yeah, like it's been fun. Also, doing guest spots on various pods. Um, most recently, the popular show.
0: Yes, everyone, go and listen to the episode of the popular show. Also, I suppose did we record since we both did my favorite film podcast?
1: No, no,
0: go and give my favorite film podcast a listen as well.
1: that's That's right we both appear as guests on that show Mm
0: -hmm. and and it's yeah it's just such a lovely it's such a lovely podcast it was such a lovely conversation
1: yeah I loved your
0: episode I loved your episode Ah. I missed you me too this is so nice to be back doing this definitely yeah obviously nice to have the summer off but like also I'm quite enjoying the structure as well of like knowing you know watch these films Mm. record on this day you know it's quite yeah it's definitely good for my especially for my now completely freelance life if I don't have some structure I'm gonna just like go to bed all day yesterday I went to bed at like nine o'clock just because I've i just experienced this like strange, like hysterical tiredness after having a week off to just do nothing.
1: <laughs> oh my God, I envy you going to bed at nine. I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm still in insomnia, mm-hmm. but, um, but I found different little ways to help me along with kind of lack of sleep. Um, so I have been improving a little bit.
0: What so- do you use to try and sleep? I might have some Um, um, I might have some recommendations
1: okay so this is my routine now at night I make sure that I'm not looking at any screen after 8 p.m that's a good one then I drink valerian tea Ooh, nice
0: that sounds witchy
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is a little bit then I do my skincare routine but very slowly like very slowly, deliberately, to kind of almost like hypnotize myself. Oh my God, this sounds amazing. It's very soothing, I have to say. And then I eat a banana because it has magnesium and it's meant to be good for as like a sleeping aid.
0: Mm. I've never heard <laughs> of that one before. This is really good. Keep going, keep going. People I, are going to benefit from this advice. <laughs> I peel the banana really slowly. No, I'm just <laughs>
1: and then i try then i do actually listen to a few asmr things Mm -hmm. like um that does help i have to admit sometimes i do stay up still pretty late i don't do this every night i wish i could you know but i'm just such a nocturnal animal
0: yeah you are
1: yeah on occasion i need to still stay up super late so that's why i guess i'm inconsistent if i did this every single night I'd be getting nine hours sleep. Are you like a morning person or do you like to like rise quite late? I am now a morning person. I didn't mm. used to be. Um, yeah. So a few changes. Mm-hmm. It's funny, actually, Sarah, you know, because when I was editing our Proust questionnaire uh, recording, it, it really struck me how even though it was only six months ago, I felt like I had really changed since then.
0: Yeah I know what you mean like I was thinking I can't remember all of my answers but I was thinking back to some of my answers and being like I why was I like I don't know I feel like they're kind of indicative of something I was worried about at the time yeah or something like that other which I'm now no longer worried about so I would totally change a lot of what I said it just goes to show that like personalities are really like changeable
1: yeah 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 exactly it's very dependent on mood and as you say like circumstantial things that are going on Mm -hmm. I mean I just heard in myself something a bit restless,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like there was something I was like preoccupied with or something on my mind that I wasn't quite articulating. And I was also dropping a lot of F-bombs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't notice, were you? <laughs> I was,
1: like uncharacteristically so, mm. um, which is fine. I'm, You know, it, it is what it is. It can stand as a moment in time and I don't mind sharing it. But I just kind of observed that I seem to have maybe changed a little bit or maybe I'm past whatever it was that was on my mind at the time.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. But whatever it is, um, it was interesting. So I look forward to having you on Patreon. We can maybe come up with another personality test or maybe we could do, I don't know, like something witchy.
0: Yeah, let's do something Richie or like talk about our birth charts or our... um... Yes, I want to talk about our birth charts. Okay, okay, that would be fun. I'd like to do that. I love birth (laughs) charts. Me too. I love them.
1: (laughs) Okay, that was a really nice intro, Sarah. And I'm super excited to dive headlong into our new, new series, The Uncanny. And we're starting with today's topic, the first theme, which is home.
0: Yep. Um, but before we start with our films, which are The Exterminating Angel and The Tenant, will you tell us a little bit about The Uncanny and Freud's theory of The Uncanny and your theories of The Uncanny? <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure, sure. So The Uncanny is a topic or a concept in psychoanalysis that is very popular and very important. It's it's sort of, I guess, rooted in Freud's essay that he published in the year 1919 called Das Unheimlich, which in German means the uncanny. Mm -hmm. Um, And he talks about something oddly familiar that we might perceive or like an eerie feeling. Um, He he gives examples such as the déjà vu. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: for Freud, the uncanny is located within the kind of lingering strangeness in ordinary situations if we actually break down the german word unheimlich it's it sort of derives from the word heimlich which is german for something that belongs to the home or something tame intimate comfortable arousing a sense of peaceful pleasure and security as in one within the four walls of our own house mm-hmm somewhere we can really like let our guard down it's where we feel like it's a predictable environment and we can just kind of like be at peace that's that's the heimlich but the unheimlich is already building on the homely vibe but it's like adding a new dimension into it it suddenly becomes a space that is uneasy and blood-curdling like a haunted state, that which was once homely. So sort of like the Unheimlich is denoting something of a kind of departure from the home. It starts off being homely, but now that sense of ease and predictability and comfort has been like derailed. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this other dimension is taking hold of the very same space, Um, which is I think why a lot of Home invasion movies are actually probably borrowing a lot from Freud's concept of the of the uncanny because it's often the case that the home invasion subgenre of horror is terrifying because it's attacking that very space at the core of where we feel most comfortable, where our guard is down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's sed- suddenly this like intrusive or invasive force is coming in to change the meaning within the parameter of what we understand to be homely. Um, In the paper, also, Freud talks about repetition being at the heart of the uncanny and doubling with the second instance as the unusual event. Mm -hmm. So this is actually really timely in a way that we're following our double series with the uncanny. Yeah, definitely. Because obviously the repetition element. I also like the fact that Freud's paper, like the publication year, is very uncanny because it's 1919.
0: Oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the repetition. Um, so in the, in the paper, he talks about like many examples of what can be uncanny, like encountering a lookalike, so harking back to what we talked about in the double, mm-hmm. but also disconcerting elements of dolls, the omnipotence of thoughts, um, instantaneous wish fulfillments, the secret power to do harm. Uh, the return of the dead Mm -hmm. Um, and he ultimately sort of concludes that the uncanny is terrifying because it corresponds to something repressed that has returned so it's kind of denoting that we once felt this let's say illicit urge or unacceptable wish or whatever it is this impulse that's taboo we had to suppress that but now it's come back into the kind of tidy little room of our conscious personality. So disturbing the peace of the ego. And yet it was always something familiar because it had once been there before. It was just suppressed.
0: Ooh. Well, Mary, what's your favorite uncanny moment in cinema? I kind of sprung this on you. We didn't plan this Whoa. question. But I was just, it just, <laughs> as you were talking, like a lot of kind of images just kind of came into my head. Yeah. Um, for me, I think my favorite uncanny in cinema moment is um, the conversation when mm-hmm. um, he's uh, Francis Ford a couple of film with Gene Hackman, where mm-hmm. he's um, he flushes the toilet and the instead of like going down the water like rises up, but it's blood ah. and like all of that blood like spills over the edge and he's kind of like backing away and there's this like awful low noise. But yeah. I just, I, as you were speaking, I just suddenly got a vision of that. It's one of my favourite scenes in cinema because it just makes my, my the hairs on my arms stand on end. It's so yeah. eerie and creepy.
1: It is. That's a very uncanny moment. Mm-hmm. And it's such a good film.
0: Oh, I love that um, film. It's one of my faves.
1: Me too. I, I think actually Slavoj Žižak had... Um, interpreted that one right
0: yeah i think it's in the pervert's guide to cinema he talks about it it. and i think i'd never see i'd never seen it before um so i watched Mm. that and then i went to see it in the cinema when it was on a close-up and it still made me like jump out of my skin like those yeah those few of those scary moments it's really terrifying and i have the soundtrack on vinyl because i like it so much
1: Oh, yeah, 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 it's really... Oh, that's cool that you got it on vinyl.
0: Yeah, yeah, I got it for Christmas <laughs> one, yeah. I put it on my wish list. I was like... Yeah, I just... I play it over and over again, that piano, that, uh, like, piano theme in the conversation. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, how cool. Mm-hmm. What about you? Okay, I have to say, one that is very uncanny to me is, um, you know, in Darren Aronofsky's film Mother, mm-hmm. when um, she starts to see people, like, just prowl around her house. Oh, yeah. And then and then she actually looks out into the distance, like, the, the front door of the house is open, and she looks out into the field around the house, and there's all these crowds of people just swarming in. That really gives me the creeps. I don't oh, know if it's just because of... Yeah, I mean, I know that it's maybe... Actually, it's quite opposite because you know Aronofsky is on record saying that the exterminating angel was a um, reference for his film,
0: oh, really? I didn't know that um, that's interesting, yeah,
1: so yeah, that that's the one that stands out to me at this time. It's just and maybe it's because I'm an introvert, and I, i'm not a big fan of having like a lot of guests around at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um it just strikes like a fear in my heart seeing all these people just emerge into the house.
0: Yeah me too when i um when i get feverish like if i get the flu or something and i have mm. uh, i get delusions and mm. one of them is that like i'm sitting i'm in my bed and pe- there's people all around me having a party and i have mm-hmm. to pretend that i'm not like asleep or not in bed ill so I like I I get I like sit up and like open my eyes really wide and like people like what are you doing like and, so yeah definitely an unconscious fear it's like people it having like people having a party in my house and me like being ill or being unable to make them leave
1: yeah yeah exactly I I feel like the uncanny will always be so personal like that in terms of just bringing up for you things that are sensitive or like um. Just like a triggering point, and mm-hmm. I suppose, I guess you and I being introverts, um, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but the obligation of being social when I'd rather kind of be off on my own is um, is is uncomfortable for me. It's something I, I maybe I need to work on get better at but it's no, it's, I, it's challenging yeah
0: I totally relate to that that's why I found climax so f- frightening because of that idea mm-hmm. of like being locked into a trip and not being able to leave a party <laughs> like it's just out like completely horrible like I love my favorite thing on earth is to just like pack up and leave like French exit is just like French exit is my kink like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh I got my kicks <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh, it's so funny because I call it the Irish goodbye.
0: Oh really? That's interesting. In France they call it um uh the English the English goodbye. It's <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's really weird. I guess like yeah, it's just whichever country your country wants to insult, <laughs> like basically. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um i mean much love to all our irish listeners out there yeah definitely Um,
0: i mean i always i always thought it was called the french exit because it was glamorous and mm. french people are glamorous but apparently it's something to do with like war and running away or something like that amazing
1: yeah, I do I get my kink out of that as well. I love knowing that I've just left somewhere and I've left a bunch of people asking where I
0: am. Yeah, same. I actually did it at the at the jumble sale yesterday. I just like packed up my stuff at four o'clock and, and like ran out the door. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Um so let's start things off with The Exterminating Angel. Okay, cool. Um I'm gonna synopsize. Okay. Um so the Exterminating Angel, 1962, Louis Bunuel.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As a group of guests arrive for a lavish dinner, the servants make their excuses and leave early. In the small hours of the morning, the guests begin to realize they are unwilling or unable to leave. Just a short one. <laughs> I didn't want to go any further.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, Louis Benoel is born on the 22nd of February.
0: Oh, what does that mean? Pisces? Or I was gonna, is Aquarius? it Pisces or
1: Aquarius? Let's find out. Oh,
0: 22nd, do... I think might mean that it's... Pisces because or is Pisces which one yeah it is Pisces yeah yeah
1: because Pisces starts on the 19th yeah. february
0: yeah. oh he's a pisces very so interesting sweet. a fellow I, water sign
1: a fellow water sign mm. um what do you what do you think of Benoît? are you a fan of his work do you know much about him
0: i am a fan of his work um i had mm-hmm. i think i've seen tons um mm-hmm. i've seen kind of more like the later stuff like obviously Belle de jour mm. um and yeah I, I definitely am a fan of his work i had i've always wanted to see this one um, so it was, nice to, it was nice to tick it off the watch list although I would like to have watched it twice because there's quite a lot happening there. So yeah, there's yeah. a
1: lot going on. I mean, I'm thrilled recovering this film because I don't know how many times on this podcast, on our like 64 episodes, I've said, Oh, this really reminds me of the exterminating angel.
0: Definitely. I mean, like the when I think about its influence, even I mean, I haven't seen it, but I knew of it. So even mm. when we were talking about climax, the aforementioned climax, like there's the similarities mm-hmm. there. Um, there's even a Buffy episode that is influenced by this film, I think. Oh my god. There's an Episode where they are all at a party and they can't leave and it's very very similar they're kind of they at first they can't leave from enjoyment and then mm-hmm. they can't leave even if they try and it, mm-hmm. like in that case it turns out to be supernatural because it's Buffy but mm-hmm. I think that's just amazing like that this film in 1962 is in like inspiring episodes of like this you know blockbuster tv show in the 90s kind yeah of amazing. He is so
1: influential. Um, I love Benoel's mind. I love his politics. I'm just going to read out this line from his obituary, actually, Mm. um, from the New York Times that called him an iconoclast, moralist, and revolutionary who was a leader of avant-garde surrealism in his youth and the dominant international movie director half a century later.
0: Ooh, that's an amazing obituary. We can only hope. uh,
1: (laughs) I know. Yeah.
0: (laughs) incredible i
1: mean just thinking of like even his first picture on chandalu which of course was made in the silent era
0: with um
1: with salvador dali um and the fact that he was you know just so associated with the surrealist movement in the 20s and yeah just also just his courage of standing up to injustice in his home country of spain and effectively having to live in Mexico for a long time.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Uh,
1: In exile, yeah. Um, But even then, when he was living in Mexico, I think he still even encountered opposition because he was a socialist. And um, yeah, I just love that he's so outspoken and so subversive in delivering his indictment of fascism and the bourgeoisie.
0: That's so interesting that we've got two directors that have lived in exile. The, yes, that's days. true. And like considering that the topic is home, that's very interesting. <gasps>
1: well observed, mm. very yeah. well observed.
0: Did he make films when he was in Mexico?
1: He did. He
0: did. Okay, that's cool.
1: Yes, he made. I believe he made this one in Mexico. Oh,
0: um, amazing! The Exterminating
1: Angel. Yeah. So he made um, this one away from home. Like, he did. Essentially, it's yes. Really
0: interesting. I love like directors. I think it's really an interesting topic. Like directors, I really love Joseph Losey. I Um, do too. And he obviously had to come here because he was blacklisted in Hollywood. So, yeah, really interesting.
1: Very interesting. Another reason why I really love Bunuel is because he seemed very aware of psychoanalysis as a theory. Mm -hmm. And I think he consciously tried to incorporate those ideas. It was like, yeah, I, I, I suppose I would maybe put him alongside Hitchcock in terms of, a director who was aware of Freudian ideas. Mm-hmm.
0: I love um, so, so yeah. Oh, nice. me too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, amazing. Just such so much love for him. He's amazing. I'm really interested in the way that we we see these very affluent people coming for a dinner party and the social ritual itself as a repetition device like a a series of actions that are performed very much according to like a prescribed order for ceremony Mm. and a type of behavior that's followed regularly and invariably by groups. And I think that already this sets the tone for maybe what Bunuel was trying to say, that the prescribed formula of how we're supposed to behave in civilization is then very much internalized in the home and people also abide by whittled down versions of what those rules are okay and in a way like the the film is bookended by repetition you know we have the formal meeting around the dinner table so sort of sophisticated and ritualized and idealized but then it all descends into chaos but even within the chaos there's repetition there as well there's Mm -hmm. like a certain order that even picks up in the chaos and um I was interested that this is all taking place inside a home, you know, it's, it's someone's very affluent mansion, but I think that it is important. The context is very important and the kind of designated spaces for, for ritual and where we find familiarity and comfort in the ritual, which is then split up in, in this uncanny way. And we're left wondering like what we're supposed to do it leaves us completely discombobulated Mm -hmm. i'm actually now wondering like i i would love to get some information about if he filmed the scenes and in sequence like in order um because the actors look like progressively haggard and like disheveled as the film goes on
0: that's true maybe he kind of method acted it and they all just had to stay inside until the film was finished that would be interesting if he did that Mm -hmm. to them
1: yeah, I would love to know if you used any kind of unethical um, practices of just actually depriving them of somewhere to sleep, you know, they mm-hmm. yeah. had to all sleep on this st- on the kind of like location of the shoot.
0: Yeah, <laughs> definitely really interesting. They all had to take that kind of like cupboard that they like took turns going in, didn't they? Um, yeah maybe they yeah maybe yeah maybe he did like maybe they slept in shifts like when they weren't doing their scenes (laughs) you can go and sleep in the cupboard (laughs) it was it
1: just seems so crazy i read there was some symbolic meaning you know the kind of figures on the doors like those closet doors of saints oh yeah i think there's some relevance there
0: oh that's interesting i mean because it does end in a church doesn't
1: it it does like
0: another kind of place of ritual yeah. Um and I don't know, I don't know like much about like Spanish Catholicism, but mm. I mean I guess like there's kind of like saints are kind of like thought of as like hysterics, aren't they? Mm-hmm. A little bit that kind of you know, not, not eating, stigmata, like all of these kind of like bodily things they go through. Mm. Um so maybe just I don't know, kind of a reference to um, if he's interested in psychoanalysis. hmm I mean i don't I don't know very much about the political situation in Spain. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not like I'm not particularly well versed on on fascism or anything. and this mm-hmm. being the first time I watched it, um, I don't know if I was projecting because I am like in therapy at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. but it just kind of reminded me of well, first thing, it reminded me of like procrastination mm-hmm. or any other kind of like block or um bad habit. Because mm-hmm. I just think the kind of like the way that it plays out in the film is like very kind of like it's very similar to kind of the process of like realizing a block and, try- and not being able to change it. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah. you have this kind of initial thing of like they want to stay there because they're enjoying themselves and it's their choice to stay there. they're mm-hmm. You know, they're, they, they don't want to go home. They want to sleep there. They want to continue this party. And then they, and which I think is sort of like the early stages of having some kind of like behavior that you, that will later on kind of cause you challenges.
1: Okay. Um, and then
0: the behavior begins to cause them pain, and, but they can't, but they can't stop because um, they're acting on a force that is like invisible or unknown to them. Um, mm-hmm. And then at the end of the film, they have to go back to the beginning. Like they have to kind of relive something. In order to kind of free themselves in the same way that you kind of do in therapy, where you go back to your childhood or you go back to like this, the like initial, the original event in order to kind of free yourself from this, like this block Mm -hmm. that you've got. Wow. Wow. Um, that's interesting yeah I just I just thought of it as procrastination of the way they're like they like go right up to the door and then they're like oh no I think I won't I think I won't leave after all
1: yeah yeah like there's this obvious shared goal that they all have which Mm -hmm. is to leave the room and they're fully seemingly committed to doing that and yet they just won't do it they just keep putting it off exactly it's yeah you're right it's more that they're putting it off rather than they're incapable because there's no one guarding the door there's nothing stopping them from leaving Mm
0: -hmm.
1: they're perfectly capable of just stepping out it's just that they're delaying it
0: exactly it's kind of almost like there's something so fearful at the door Mm -hmm. or at the it's yeah there's something so because they do so they kind of sink into like a depression when Mm. they get too close to it or like a couple of them do a couple of them like have to sit down and and become like very very like upset and very yeah. like affected um so yeah it's kind of like meeting this like impossible anxiety that you can't you can't get through you have to go back instead
1: that's right that's really well put they're psychologically trapped inside the room not physically
0: yeah exactly but i mean that's just of uh, that's just what it kind of appealed appeared like to me but that's because i don't have any background about the political or religious like um, kind mm-hmm. of thoughts of of Louis Bunuel.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not totally au fait either with the political situation at the time or even Bunuel's political views, but it seems to me that he often did focus on well-to-do, like the great and the good, the well-off people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, often it was an indictment of them, but he was also using their predicament as almost like a a case study for, for all of us, actually, Mm -hmm. because he, I think he just wanted to also punch up a little bit, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I I, I just think he wanted to expose the hypocrisy that is so evident in what the bourgeois are doing and maybe suggesting that we can all, we can all stand to learn something from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of it is, I think, rooted in, the boredom of these rich people where they have all of their needs met at all times and they're simply interested in maintaining this persona and facade of contentment but actually even at the dinner table before everything goes twisted and weird you can see there's a lot of backbiting between these friends Mm -hmm. like they're very bitchy (laughs) yeah definitely um yeah it's, it's not all like corresponding in real life to the image they want to portray of absolute civilized poised elegance, you know, I actually think a, another great text for this movie besides the uncanny by Freud is also civilization in its discontents. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that we are effectively coerced being inducted into civilization into kind of releasing our primordial instincts in exchange for belonging to a group. And we have to kind of abide by the rules of society. Mm-hmm. But that ultimately just this results in neurosis and psychological breakdown because we're actually not being true to ourselves. We're not fully expressing ourselves. We're just doing more suppressing than anything else. And um, it just really exposes how quickly their purported morality declines when their needs are not being met and they just really very quickly like degrade into a state of primordial chaos despite their best intentions at the beginning Mm
0: -hmm. that they're really
1: no different to the working class that they so openly mock and the uncanniness of that as well
0: what uh, role do you think the butler plays in this because he's kind of the only like working class Mm. member and he kind of he comes in a bit later and then gets trapped yeah but he doesn't kind of lose his he doesn't lose his dignity throughout the whole thing he kind of remains like really kind yeah he does that's a good question i
1: think maybe because of the butler's connection with his work with his work Mm. you know he, he has this honest relationship with how he spends his day you know he has tasks that he does and he performs his duty um, the way it's set out for him but it's like a willing participation in the the materiality of the work Mm -hmm. whereas I think these people they they're just living off their wealth aren't they they're not you know they're just aristocrats or whatever and there is like often I hear theories around the super rich being in a kind of atomized, alienated state because they're so divorced from the materiality of work. They're so incredibly alienated from everyday activities that they're just living inside this bubble
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they're completely detached. And as a result, kind of psychotic, almost illusional. I think maybe that's where they differ from the butler and the butler still remains, even though he's also trapped he maintains his humanity because he's always had this connection with the materiality of his work
0: Mm -hmm.
1: he's not he wasn't coming from a place of alienation to begin with whereas they were
0: that's really interesting and that kind of explains why all the other staff seem to know something they don't at the beginning of the Mm -hmm. film yeah and they don't not even know they don't even necessarily know they just like feel very strongly that they have to leave
1: That's right. Um,
0: So they're not even, it's not like they know on an intellectual level. They just know on this kind of instinctual, they've got their hands to the ground. Yeah. Kind of level, which is really interesting. I love that idea of like work making you, um, like work, like reversing your like alienation basically, which is really, it's a really nice thought. kind of goes back to our work and money series. Yeah, Like honest work. Honest (laughs) work, like an
1: honest, an honest day's work where you feel you've accomplished something and you're you know you have a purpose whatever that may be um yeah that's a good question though there is a marked difference isn't there between Mm -hmm. the working people in the film and these uh these layabouts
0: (laughs) even uh, and it's the same with the doctor as well Mm -hmm. the doctor kind of maintains his sanity and again it's because he's got like a profession he has he understands the body he like Yeah. yeah he's got something to do something to occupy him He has purpose. He has purpose, exactly, and the others are really kind of aimless and alienated. Um, Yeah, even like even like it's quite sweet people like the the engaged couple. Or like maybe everyone else is trapped in their fear of marriage and that that like it's all happened because (laughs) they're like they're like oh we're gonna have you be married soon it's so exciting but like actually both of them have really cold feet so maybe (laughs) maybe it's their psyches that have like kept everyone in the room so they can miss their wedding.
1: That's so good. Oh, my God. That's a great reading.
0: Thank you. I really like that. I don't know where that came from. So, something in me. Amazing. It must be that they didn't want to get married. Like, just, <laughs> I don't know where that sprang from in my subconscious.
1: <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I just remember like the first ever time watching this movie and it really had an uncanny effect on me because I didn't know anything about it. Somehow I had missed all the references to it. It was also a long time ago that I saw it. It it was like this weird dream-like effect for me where I was like, well, why can't they leave? I don't understand. Have I missed something? And I remember like rewinding the DVD a few times because I thought something important had happened that I missed. And I was watching so intently and just a kind of like, casual way in which it just unfolds into absurdism mm-hmm. <laughs> really got to me like i felt like i was in a dream
0: it's it is so interesting because you i think if someone made that today they wouldn't be able to resist putting some kind of like some kind of like visual mm-hmm. like hint of what's happening or like you know they will there would have to be some kind of barrier that explains it like there's nothing at all kind of like supernatural or um or like there's no, oh. there's no effects it's just some people and that's why it lends itself so easily to like the interpretation of anxiety or procrastination or something psychological because there doesn't really seem to be anything preventing them from leaving
1: so yeah, yeah
0: it's so brilliant I really enjoyed it my favorite kind of uncanny image is the one that you, that you used in the trailer
1: oh yeah
0: so she gets a handkerchief out of her bag and all these chicken feet fall out um and it is like kind of indicative of like of yeah just these kind of outwardly civilized people like doing these like really disgusting things and like in secret
1: yes yeah yeah exactly like just the violence of that that they're capable of committing Mm -hmm. the the subversive means of the film of exposing their brutal savagery yeah um yeah yeah um I guess like I, I like that it the film really puts us in the place of the guests, so like we have we have a shared experiential reality because we also long for like a rational explanation to ward off the ex- the anxiety of their repetitive behavior mm-hmm. and we we never really get anything, you know, like I mean, it's only really at the end when they finally ha- somehow get this insight and they have the wherewithal to reconstruct. All of their conversations and all of their movements from when the plight began, mm-hmm. that they finally are free to leave, which I think is actually very psychoanalytic. It sort of tells you that even we, even within the analytic situation, I mean, I, I was, as you know, I, I underwent psychoanalysis for almost a year. And I remember feeling very frustrated that I kept going back to sessions like twice a week. Mm-hmm. And I was always just repeating the same thing. Yeah. And it was so frustrating. And I kept going in and saying, I want a solution. I don't want to have to talk about this anymore. You know, what is to be done? Yes. <laughs> and, um, and of course, my analyst said nothing. <laughs> 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 he, was blank, he was a blank slate. Um, And I finally kind of figured out that I have to reorganize the signifiers myself. I have to go back and reconstruct the past and try and find the narrative and, you know, really pin down the root of this repetition, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: where it kind of began and try and almost like relive it, but in a very conscious way, as opposed to the unconscious way I had been doing. And luckily for me, I had a real life scenario where I had very much like a challenge in the analysis that then gave me the opportunity to set the wrong things right. Mm. And that's when I was finally free. I wasn't just free of the thing that I felt compelled to constantly talk about. I was also free of the analysis.
0: Yeah, that's (laughs) (laughs) the bonus. (laughs) The bonus of the cure is that you don't go to analysis anymore. (laughs)
1: yeah I was like I'm done with this you know thank you very much I'm out um yeah but yeah I suppose that makes sense does not it that Bunuel would stage it in that way because he was so analytically minded
0: yeah yeah definitely that's it like that's definitely what struck me immediately is that it did seem to be about about therapy (laughs) like really
1: it is I just want to say um, one last thing from my side for this film um Did you ever see the movie Midnight in Paris? The Woody Allen movie? Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, I remember that film. That was such a strange movie. I watched that a few times, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, yeah, very strange for sure. I just, I was reminded of it because the Owen Wilson character, you know, obviously he's like a time traveler or whatever. But when he goes back in time in Paris in the 1920s, we see him meeting up with... (laughs) the surrealists you know do you remember salvador Dali, man ray oh, yeah. and and Nouel? and he explains his conflict to them that you know th- this claim about coming from the future and everything and they just react completely normally they're like okay yeah that makes sense you know because mm-hmm. they're surrealists <laughs> it doesn't occur to them as weird that he's from the future <laughs> but anyway in the movie he, We see him actually suggesting the plot of the film, The Exterminating Angel, to Benoît. Oh, my God, I don't remember that. That, was, that yeah. was so interesting. Yeah, yeah, he says, what if you made a movie about people who had a dinner party and they can't leave and no one knows why? Amazing. <laughs> oh, and Manuel doesn't understand, but he's, like, super intrigued. Anyway, um, yeah. A-
0: actually, have you ever seen um, the Audrey Hepburn uh, film paris when it sizzles i never saw that one um it's really it's a really nice film someone got it for me i think my i think my mum got it for me on vhs when i was little like she got me breakfast at tiffany's and paris when it sizzles uh-huh. and i watched it over and over again and um it kind of like it's an American movie so it kind of makes fun of like the French like you know like French art house (laughs) basically so it's about a girl a woman who comes to be a secretary for a a Hollywood screenwriter who's living in Paris and he's got a script due in on Monday and it's Saturday and he hasn't written it yet so they have to try and write a script for a film together and he's like and he's like a drinker and us a, like a, you know so he's just basically been spending his advance like having like partying and now he's got to like write a full screenplay in a weekend um, okay and there's a bit and she is is like has been she's like an American who's been living in Paris for a while and she mm-hmm. has a date with <laughs> Tony like Tony Curtis who plays like the, this like man I think it's like called Philippe or something like that's stereotypically French and okay. he's and she's and she's telling the director about and she's like oh yes he's wonderful he's an artist last um last year he was in a film where a group of people decide not to have a dinner party and <laughs> 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 And then, like all of the films that this like actor makes are like, sp- are, like basically takes on the exterminating angel. So it's like they're like, it's, like now next year he's in one about a group of people who decide not to play a game of cards, and like it's just all <laughs> like there's just all kind of takes of the exterminating angel. And I never understood it until I until I figured out what the reference was. Like years okay. later, it's a really nice film. It's like very much. It's quite like anti-intellectual. It's very much about like. This yeah, it's kind of like this like clash of cultures, I suppose. But in yeah. the, obviously, because it's a Hollywood film, like the screenwriter like wins out and she gets together with him, not this like French, um, like this kind of French like nick actor. <laughs>
1: Oh my goodness, that is so cool! I need to see this movie.
0: Yeah, it's a great film. It's really, it's um, it's really weird, but yeah, I like it very much. And they kind of, they like write the screenplay together, and then they kind of, and then like they sort of act out scenes, and then like they can they find like the floor in the film, and then like have to start all over again. It's also very, okay. it's like a lot of repetition. Yeah, they like write like a romance. They write a vampire film. They write all of these different kinds of films. It's so yeah. It's actually a really interesting film about films. Now I think about it.
1: Okay, that's yeah. going straight to the top of my watch list. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I haven't seen it for many years. Like I used to watch it over and over again as a teenager, but I can't really remember it now. But those mm. but I definitely remember. And she has a she has a bird, or like a canary or something called Richelieu Um and she has this like amazing scene where she wears this like negligee, this like blue, like this like amazing like blue ensemble to go to sleep in. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah.
1: I know. I know you're a big fan of sleepwear. I
0: am a big <laughs> fan of sleepwear. I love it so much.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay. Well, well, from very glamorous to very unglamorous, the tenant. Yes.
0: Oh, I, have we not discussed a Roman Polanski film before on the podcast?
1: We must have done. See- I, I feel th- like I don't. Know have we you not? Know
0: really it seems. Oh my god. Insane. But I don't think we have. Which because he's really such a weird.
1: projections podcast director
0: exactly I don't know why we wouldn't have but for some, <laughs> I think it's one of those things where you save them like yeah. you save the films that you really like for another series and then you just end up forgetting about it
1: they're too sublime exactly. so yeah exactly. he's a problematic fave
0: problematic fave <laughs> from Polanski
1: <laughs> do you know his star sign mm,
0: I can't even guess tell me I would never have
1: guessed that he's a Leo.
0: Whoa. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I guess, yeah, kind of makes sense. Kind of makes sense. Um, Assertive. I don't know. Likes to party. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely likes to party. Definitely. Um, Um, Interesting. (laughs) uh,
1: Yeah, so he not only directed The Tenant, but he also starred in it.
0: Yeah, so... I'll let you do the synopsis. Yeah, indicates a very personal film, maybe. But, Mm -hmm. um, okay, so The Tenant, 1976, Roman Polanski. Um, A man named Tchaikovsky moves into an apartment previously inhabited by a young woman, Simone, who committed suicide there, throwing herself from the window. When the workers at the neighbor, neighboring cafe be, begin bringing him Simone's usual orders instead of his own, and his neighbors are hostile towards him, Tchaikovsky descends into paranoia. Again, mm. short and sweet.
1: Short and sweet. The third installment in the unofficially named Apartment Trilogy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, preceded by the, by Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. I have to say, these three films, they're they are pretty much up there for me, maybe in the top 10 all-time favorites of mine.
0: Yeah, same. um
1: I think The Tenant is terrifying to me.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's very... I mean, both of these films, they're not, like, enjoyable. <laughs> because
1: <No. laughs> they do
0: contain, like, these kind of characters that are so kind of alienated from themselves. Yeah. And I think that's a really... I found that quite difficult with this... I've always found that quite difficult with this film, because with... um I don't know, Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion, they're just like easier watches, especially Rosemary's oh, yeah. Baby. But mm. this is, you know, I, I saw that well, I was trying to synopsize, and I saw that on kind of synopses, like official synopses of this film, people mm. describe this character as like shy and retiring. But mm. he's so much more than that, as there's something much more kind of sinister going on with his personality. Mm-hmm. Um, because he doesn't seem to, there's something like a little bit almost like subhuman. <laughs> about like the way he kind of goes about things like he doesn't again like yeah he's so alienated from himself that he doesn't he doesn't have a full personality no um even just like the way he kind of you know he like he, this department depends upon the woman who threw herself out of the window finally dying and he kind of goes to the hospital to see whether she's dying or not, like, to, so, or to kind of, I, if God knows what he's doing. Mm. And then, you know, he kind of, when she does die, like he like, you know, goes into the pub and like puts on the radio and like, you know, likes, you know, looks really joyful. Mm-hmm. And it's such a, like, such a dark way to kind of get the thing you want, but then like, you kind of see that his relationship with other people, he kind of like bends to the will of these like bullying colleagues that he has. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just very, he's, it's a very strange character.
1: You're right like it's not that he's necessarily shy or timid he's it's more that he's detached. Yes. Yeah.
0: Isn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah, he's it's it's like yeah, I see what you mean about his personality being a bit maybe malformed or something. Yeah. Because it's like he imagines um like right away when he moves in and of course there are pressures from the neighbors about noise levels and there's all this kind of like there's a lot of hostility in this building <laughs> seemingly. Mm-hmm about people being quiet, when he goes and visits that friend of his and the guy puts on like this, what I don't know what that record was, a weird marching band record or mm-hmm. something. It's like this ludicrous pho- photographic negative of his situation. Yeah. Which is probably all in his own imagining that he's in this other alternate space. And the most obnoxious things are being done to create loud noise. A lot of the times, yeah, there's like something in Tchaikovsky that makes me think that he's he's living in extremes. Like he's living in this very dichotomous split up reality where he sees his own experience then refracted in these extreme situations Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that are like really unhinged. So, I mean, I would more classify him as being definitely like a psychotic. I guess like all of the people in the apartment trilogy. Yeah, I suppose Um, so. You know, there's definitely a psychosis going on. He's building this narrative about his world that is completely detached from reality in the same way that he's so detached. Yeah,
0: that's really Uh, interesting. Yeah, I like that.
1: I was searching online for some interpretations of this movie and I found some really good theories about how it's actually all like some kind of time loop or weird reality split
0: Mm -hmm. um,
1: in terms of from the moment where he goes to the hospital to visit Simon Shul, he's already the person in the bandages. Yes. He's already mummified. And we see that kind of confirmed when we see his perspective and we, we see him and Stella, you know, coming to visit him. Um, and
0: it is definitely him in the bandages in the beginning like that's not a woman like that's definitely it definitely is him so it was
1: always him which is so creepy when I first realized that yeah and so it, it could all done just point to the tenant being some kind of like hellish prison of the mind where you're just condemned to to relive the same nightmarish moment over and over again there's no escape mm-hmm. it's kind of in, in a way it's like the, the exterminating angel you know like you're just constantly confined to this one psychological space that you can never escape from
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in every scenario that plays out you end up being the guy jumping out the window um and in and bandages there is no point at which that scenario does can't unfold it's actually very clever
0: mm-hmm
1: which is which also terrifies me um because that's my definition of hell being like in this limbo state of never being able to escape
0: yeah definitely it is really frightening when you like it's something that i you don't realize how frightening it is until that last scene at first you're kind of just like oh this is like a sort of this is like a like another repulsion and yeah. then like it takes you into a totally different level, that last scene where you realize that it's that he's just gonna kind of doomed to repeat that over and over again and he can't warn himself, which is really That's interesting.
1: Right. You know, I was looking up the names in in the movie, and uh, particularly Simone Schulz, who's the kind of the person that we were told used to live in the apartment who threw herself off, you know, out the window. So Simone. Is a name derived from the Hebrew Simeon, which means one who hears. And it's relevant in the building where all the neighbors are obsessed with overhearing noise mm-hmm. and enforcing quiet. But also her name, her surname, Shul, that's actually a traditional team ball game from Normandy, often very violent and aggressive. And I think this is significant in the moment where Trokovsky imagined that his neighbors are playing football with his decapitated head
0: oh interesting oh yeah, yeah. it is really there there's like i like how he kind of descends into like this kind of state of like infantilism mm-hmm. like by the end like when he kind of goes i that, the scene that really freaks me out is when he hits the kid by the lake like yes. There's that like little. There's that little boy crying because he lost his boat, or because his boat's like gone to the other side of the lake, and he walks over and just hit and smacks him on the face. It yeah. really, it's really horrible because there's something really. It's like almost, and then he immediately goes to Isabella Jani's house, and she kind of like mothers him. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, no, don't be naughty. Like you can stay. You can go outside for some fresh air. Like and it, and yeah, it's just like really uncanny and strange. It's like he hit the child out of like this sudden like sense of jealousy. Or something mm-hmm. like envy about his childhood state um, yeah, is the only true. like interpretation I can make of that scene. But that really freaked me out. It was really horrible.
1: Yeah. What does he call him? Filthy little brat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In <laughs> this kind of like high pitched woman's voice. Yes. He says it. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It definitely does. And it's really, it's really strange and it's never really referred to again. But from that point on, there's a lot of kind of mother stuff that goes yeah. on. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Actually, all of the times that he hangs out with um, the Isabella Johnny character are very weird. Like when they go to that cinema and what are they, like watching a Bruce Lee movie or something?
0: Yeah, they're watching Enter the Dragon.
1: (laughs) That's the one. And there's a guy sat right behind them because they're like, I don't know if they're like snogging or feeling each other up in the cinema.
0: Yeah.
1: And then when he, it's just that moment when, when, Roman Polanski turns around and there's this one guy just staring.
0: Yeah, who's like we've got his face really, really close. And then and then after like they like there, yeah, they do like feel each other up and then afterwards she's like, Do you want to go for a drink? And she's like, No. And then she just <laughs> goes home. Exactly.
1: That like that that is very uncanny.
0: Yeah, it is. She's very strange. Like I can't really make her out like what her no. use is in the film. She's a really strange character.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: apart from like I guess like that he never sleeps with her. So no. there's this like kind of strange, unfulfilled thing of um yeah. expect like if you have a man and a woman in a film, you expect them to sleep together and he just like never quite <laughs> manages it. I guess because it's like he's not like fully functional.
1: No, um, he's there's nothing erotic about him. There's no like there's no threat of of the erotic emerging from him because he is so detached did you notice he also wears this weird shirt which is like you can just unbutton the sleeves
0: yes that was so weird I don't know if that's what shirts were like in those days or what that was but it was really odd very very strange I mean I guess like like, there is a lot of like disembodied clothing and like weird holes in places mm -hmm. in that film so maybe it's just like another element of that I'm not sure like I think there's a there's a film there's like a David Lean film but like Mm. a black and white I can't remember what it's called but it's like I think Mm -hmm. there's a bit where like a couple get married and it's like very east end black and white and -hmm. then the the woman goes to bed and is like obviously kind of like waiting for him to come to bed and he takes off the cuffs and the collar of his shirt because it's set in like the 40s or you know 50s and -hmm. people's like shirts did come apart like that and it's this really I always really remember the image because he puts he's like kind of he's in this like situation where I guess he's about to like have he's about to like consummate the marriage and he's like having this kind of moment of like awkward like anticipation and he Mm -hmm. doesn't know what to do with himself and he takes the collar and cuffs off his shirt and puts them on the mantelpiece like lines them up on the mantelpiece Mm. and kind of like I don't know it's like he's taking off these kind of outward effects of masculinity a little bit and then he's like going into this realm that is like sexual and that is kind of dominated by his wife a little bit I don't know I don't know why that kind of struck me yeah there's something I don't know it just kind of reminded me of it like the way that like men's clothes come apart like that to like so that they can stop kind of performing masculinity that's um, so interesting and then he has like he's just like constantly confronted by like holes and gaps which like yeah. kind of do suggest like the female like experience yeah. but then also Im- imply that he's got some kind of like fate like fatal flaw like some kind of mm-hmm. like on un- like hole basically and which yeah. is oh my god that is it, so true Because, like you know that she immediate like shelly winters I, I never realized that was shelly winters until yeah it was well. so crazy she's amazing in mm.
1: But when she
0: kind of looks down and she kind of she says like she says like the previous owner threw herself out of the window and she giggles and mm. you want to see and it's like it's a bit like children showing each other that their vaginas yeah oh <laughs> to this whole And then later he moves the wardrobe and he finds that hole with the tooth in. Then he's got that hole with the tooth is isn't in in there anymore. Um, And he finds the dress and the dress is like this uncanny object without a body in it. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of- Like this void. void. Another void. Yeah, it's like full of voids, the film. Oh my God. It was void, I suppose. And also when
1: he's coming down the staircase after his little like- party Mm -hmm. in the morning and he's carrying all those garbage bags and one of them is full of holes and the garbage is just like falling out
0: yes yeah that's so true yeah
1: that is so true I love your theory
0: I'm not really quite sure what it's a theory of yet (laughs) like I (laughs) I mean at what point in his life did Polanski make this film
1: okay so this was made two years before incident
0: okay not to but Sharon Tate would obviously, would already have yeah it was post Sharon Tate okay
1: and pre-incident
0: that's interesting because mm-hmm. I kind of I just always sort of wonder what Roman Plansky thinks of himself yeah because as well you know like he like he definitely I don't know like when you've had a, your wife be murdered like that yeah you would feel guilt anyway But especially if, like, you... The reason that you weren't there was that you were kind of, like, enjoying... Like, you were, like, off having sex with people because Mm. you didn't find your pregnant wife attractive anymore. Mm. Like, I don't know. There's kind of... And then, yeah, I don't know, I suppose.
1: But also even predating that, the fact that he, as a child, escaped the Holocaust. Yeah. And, you know, family members murdered. And I can't even imagine what the hell is in his mind you know like there must be a traumatic minefield like I mean obviously nothing excuses the fact that he did commit a crime I'm not trying to excuse that Mm -hmm. but he is a very fascinating character
0: oh definitely and I think that there is like maybe that kind of that character is like a representation of how he feels inside yeah a little bit because that that I think that part that character is like very much someone who's kind of like like traumatized or in like emergency mode because mm-hmm. of the way that he kind of like, he sort of changes to fit like others around him. And he does these kinds of things on autopilot, but doesn't seem to have like any real desires or, mm. um, he kind of just wants to like be left in peace a little bit, but then he, he also does. like, he also wants, yeah, he just kind of, yeah, he doesn't seem to be driven. He doesn't to be driven by something outside desire, something a bit more like, Yeah automatic or instinctual mm-hmm. um so yeah definitely it seems like a person that's kind of broken yeah in some way so maybe yeah I don't know and it's a real unattractive person as well Very. whereas I think like in life Polanski probably I mean he had all those like really hot like he had a beautiful wife and like seemed to be like quite charming and draw people to him mm-hmm. but it's like maybe um Tchaikovsky is like is more of a representation of how he feels internally yes yeah
1: yeah there were so many scenes in this movie that I felt he was acting from a genuine place
0: yeah
1: yeah I mean it is it, it's a movie that is uncanny almost from the first shot yeah and it's just doesn't let up like it just sustains the viewer in that feeling of dread and discomfort right until the very last scene and it it actually terrifies me. Um, you know, it's I was thinking also like about the significance in the film of like centered around Egyptology. Mm-hmm. Because several scenes refer to the mysteries surrounding ancient Egypt. And I actually think for this reason alone Freud would have been interested in the tenant because um Freud was a great lover of archaeology and antiquity. But Just for instance, like Simon Schulz's injured body in the hospital Mm -hmm. becomes a symbol of, I guess, something repressed that is preserved
0: Mm.
1: with, like, secret wounds tightly wrapped and hidden from view, just like a mummy. Mm, That's so true. And his identification with Simon suggests that he's covering up something as well. There's definitely, like something fucked up that happened to Trovosky. I mean I actually would like to see the prequel to The Tenant
0: oh definitely that would be really interesting yeah,
1: yeah. what is Tchaikovsky's origin story
0: <laughs> yeah I mean it obviously is something a little bit like frightening and he's kind of treated with like he's treated as an outsider by like, the police and the other the other tenants you know there's this idea because mm-hmm. he's not French like he's from somewhere there's got yeah this idea like he's like he's there's something horrible about him. Like like he brings something really dark and horrible. Yeah. With him and it's like maybe not his fault. Is it like implies that he's from like this kind of traumatic background of somewhere like from somewhere where something horrible happened, which he is, which tra- he is. Me. So yeah, he yeah. is
1: exactly, and it's. I mean, obviously, you, you could definitely read the tenant as commenting on xenophobia in France. Yeah. You know the fact that he is. Constantly asked if he's French, you know, and he has to produce his ID. And he always says, I'm a French citizen. Mm-hmm. And there would have for sure been xenophobia, you know, directed towards him as a Polish, Jew, you know, Jew yeah. living in France. Of course, there would have been hostility on some level that he would have experienced. I mean, I just like that it's a very consistent theme in the movie of like the Egyptology stuff when. Even like one of Simone's friends gives him a book she used to own called The Novel of the Mummy, mm-hmm. a postcard from Georges badar addressed to Simone gets handed to Tchaikovsky. Trel- and on it is an Egyptian figure representing the preservation of the dead and immortality, um, which I guess you could almost use to describe as the eternal recurrence of desires emanating from the unconscious they're always preserved you know freud Mm -hmm. always used to say that and also there's this the shared bathroom in the apartment floor where neighbors stand dead still for hours apparently reading and writing egyptian hieroglyphics on the wall Mm -hmm. yeah that's true so it just it all kind of builds on the increasingly uncanny and bizarre references to egyptology I guess I'm just kind of intrigued by that as potentially this kind of ancient language that belongs to the past, but that is relevant for some reason in this moment. And that is always one's own subjective narrative. It's always ancient, you know?
0: Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Mm. I, like that, I like that you like bring up his kind of identification with Simone, because like, I suppose mm. I was confused by his motivations, but mm-hmm. he, that is actually, that is his motivation. Like that is what brings, I was always like, what brings him to the hospital apart from something really ghoulish? Mm. But actually it's that, you know, something about her really, yeah, speaks to him. And he does like spend the whole, he spends like the whole um, film like re- over-identifying with her. Um, yes, he does. Yeah. yeah, that's so interesting.
1: Yeah, and I mean the use of, embodying himself in her dress and in her makeup um i think is a lot like the covering up you know the kind of i guess the i guess it's an, an, another form of mummification
0: mm.
1: yeah i mean there's a lot going on here I, I i keep i've seen this film many times and i still discover new things i mean i actually read a theory that a lot of it could also be about Maybe Tchaikovsky being a closeted homosexual.
0: Yeah, I can see that.
1: Because maybe he has feelings for this Badar guy, but he has to externalize his function in his life as a friend of Simon Schulz, who had romantic feelings for her. So that at least he's detached from that, you know, from that interaction.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Because there is that kind of scene where he takes him for a drink when he learns yeah. of Simone's death, and that like Fassbinder type character like <laughs> arrives, and it's like obviously two like leather leather guys,
1: leather daddies, leather daddies,
0: or like a leather daddy <laughs> and a leather baby, because one of them is like one of them is a bit more kind of like on the petite side, and um, and yeah, like that's the, there is that strange that strange kind of moment and. And he comes up to him and says, like, drinks for everyone except for you. Yeah. And then the guy, like, starts crying. And it's, it's really, like, it's a really weird moment. And I could totally forget it because it doesn't fit in with the rest of the film in a weird way. So, yeah, that is definitely, that's definitely part of it, I think.
1: Yeah. And then they go off and the guy's drunk and Tchaikovsky's, like, seeing him after the metro. Mm -hmm. And he says something really. That struck me he said what you've done for me is not natural
0: yes yeah
1: which made me think of like i guess the way that society might have defined queerness that Mm -hmm. is not natural you know and the and he also kisses him on the mouth he does yeah yeah and then and then we see him disappear into like down the steps of the metro into a hole into a hole (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah 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 i guess also like the stuff of finding teeth in the holes and holes in the wall Mm. maybe it also suggests that he is toothless
0: um in terms of like personality yeah yeah Yeah. you
1: know in terms of just being a lacking courage and lacking his own autonomy and agency
0: yeah i suppose so Mm. i suppose so um and that's kind of why he like dresses up in this woman that seems to have had so many like had so much like going mm. for her because she's certainly so described as beautiful she's obviously really clever she's mm-hmm. like adored from afar by these men and like mm. she has she has friends she has a social life she has kind of everything he doesn't have yeah um yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah definitely i mean it's interesting thinking about that alongside his preoccupation with at what precise moment is an individual who they are? Like, when do they stop being who he thinks they are or something? Mm-hmm. Like, he says, if you cut off my head, what would I say? Me and my head or me and my body? What right has my head to call itself me? Mm-hmm. He's he's really trying to, like, locate himself. Yeah. It's like he's this weird philosophical obsession with pinning himself down.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which
1: bleeds into these kind of other obsessions. And the way that he thinks there's a plot against him, like all of these neighbors are in a conspiracy to try and force the same fate as Simon Schul upon him and drive him to commit suicide, that they, they, they've they just been planning this for months and months. And they're trying to like align his, even his habits with Simon, you know, how the local cafe will only serve, serve him hot chocolate, not coffee. Cause mm-hmm. that's what Simon used to drink and, they'll only sell him Mar- Marlboros instead of Golois Bleu, Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: because, you know, that's what Simon used to smoke. I have to say, this movie really made me want to smoke. <laughs> he offers people cigarettes and I'm like, yeah, I'm dying for one, thanks. Like, <laughs> just give me one.
0: Well, it made me want to have a hot chocolate, so it just shows you. <laughs> like,
1: we both identified with Simon Schul in the yeah, movie. in different ways. In different, in different- ways
0: um well yeah i have you got anything more to say on the tenant
1: no i think that that about does it for me Uh, Mm -hmm. i think we've covered it um yeah i mean also like worth watching this movie just for that finale of his delusion of his neighbors all around the courtyard just (gasps) sitting in their balcony watching him oh my god
0: it's really great i loved that scene it was fun it kind of was hitchcockian Um, yes in terms it kind of reminded me of real window but then Mm -hmm. yeah it's obviously also like very like rosemary's baby i think polanski's got a weird fear of old people
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes he does
0: i wonder what that is maybe just they seem parental i'm not sure
1: sure yeah yeah he's he's very suspicious of them
0: yeah very
1: (laughs) Well, this has been really fun. What is is episode two? We're going to be recording that in two weeks.
0: So episode two, we're going to be speaking on the theme of food in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Swallow.
1: Amazing. Looking Mm -hmm. forward. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Be sure to subscribe to us on all your podcast apps.
0: Please do. And write a
1: review. Thank you so much for supporting us. And, yeah, we'll catch you on the next one. Bye.